If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verses 36 and read through the end of the chapter, but it'll be Acts chapter 2. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at FAC. It's truly an honor to be able to be with you this morning, especially with it being Mother's Day. Uh, I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. Um, If this is a painful day for you, I want you to know that our heart uh, goes out to you uh, very much so. Regardless if it's a painful day or a joyous day for you, I think we can all agree that mothers are very important and play an incredible influence on our lives. Um, I recall when I was younger, um, every single morning before I would go to school, my mother would want to pray for me. Um, And oftentimes I would go into her room to find her sitting in her armchair with her Bible open on her lap. Um, and she has no idea the influence that that had on me to, to see the value of scripture. Um, she was one of the primary influences in my life to show me how valuable scripture is. And so let's turn to God's word and see what he would have in store for us. I'm going to read uh, once again, Acts chapter two, verses 36 through 47. I'll pray and then we'll begin. It says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and all all the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as um, any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And now, Father, as we look to your word, uh, would your spirit illuminate it? I recognize, Father, that these uh, words that I even say um, are powerless without your spirit. So we ask, Father, as we turn to you, that you would call us, that you would call us out, um, or call us out of a former way of life into a new life that embraces Jesus Christ. And in your holy name I pray, amen. It's that time of year again where uh, high schoolers are getting ready to graduate and prepare to go off to college. Um, I remember the the first time going off to college and just thinking about how surreal of a feeling it was. Because it really is a, an odd transition of sorts, isn't it? You take these students who have lived in a particular community their entire life, and you uproot them and you place them into a dramatically different community. 
And this college community, once again, is radically different than anything these students have ever experienced. It was very um, evident to me as I went to college uh, that community life at school is much different, looks much differently than community life at home. How I interacted with my peers and how my peers interacted with me and, and how um, we looked li- what we looked like as a group of people was just different. It was unlike anything I had ever experienced. Now, depending on your own experience, this could be either a very, very good thing um, or it could be a very, very bad thing. Um, from my experience, it was very clear that those people who were in leadership at college did whatever they could to create this healthy environment environment for the students, to create a healthy uh, community culture, a community that could thrive, that could be effective, that could function and be fruitful and be healthy. And there were certain values put in place uh, by the leadership to ensure the health of the overall community. Some were very intentional values, some were more natural, but they were all put in place to uphold this community life in college. Um, What we read in Acts 2 at the very end in verses 42 through 47 is a peek into the community life of those first believers. These believers who were taken from an old community, put into a new community, and naturally their community life as believers, as Christ followers, developed a new identity in and of itself. So I'd like to actually take the next six weeks, as uh, John had mentioned earlier today, I want to take a look um, today and then the following six weeks and dive deep into what did this community life look like for those first believers. And my intention with this series is essentially to hold the mirror up. To look at FAC as a whole, and I would like to evaluate what our community life looks like here and just compare it to Scripture. Ask the question do we care about the things that we should really be caring about? Are we concerned about the basics? Now, but before we dive deep into this community life that's described in Acts, we need to ask how did we get here? The passage that we read earlier, um, we, we dropped right into the middle of an event, right in the middle of a conversation. Um, it, it's the equivalent of walking into a movie halfway through, and without the context, we're going to struggle to understand how we got here, how we got into this community. And so uh, I would like to just take a moment to catch us up to speed. Right? Two weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 1, uh, and we have Jesus talking to his disciples, and he's giving them instruction. He is equipping them with the gospel and he's equipping them. He tells them that he's going to equip them with the Holy Spirit. And then when that happens, Jesus tells the disciples to start in Jerusalem, but you are going to carry this message out to the rest of the world. Um, Jesus then ascends into heaven. The disciples sit around waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, they actually are filled with the Holy Spirit at uh, Pentecost. And they experience this incredible spiritual moment where they become empowered by God, uh, by his by His Spirit. They become empowered to do His will. And they actually begin to speak in other languages. 
And so this is an odd sight for anybody, right? And we're told in verse 5 of chapter 2 that there were Jews from other portions of the world, other countries living in Jerusalem, who hear about these men, and they go check out what all the commotion is about. And when when they go, they can understand these disciples in their very own language, and they don't really know what's going on, but they're amazed by it. And then you get some, you know, these naysayers that aren't so impressed. And they kind of mock them, right? It's, they're, they're hurling insults at them, saying they're, they're just filled with some kind of new wine, that's what they say. Basically, they're accusing them of being drunk. Like, you, you guys, there's nothing, there's nothing special about these men. These guys are just drunk. And so Peter decides to speak up. If you know Peter, he's always the one that decides to speak up. Peter speaks up and says, no, we're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Why on earth would we be drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning? No, we're not filled with this new wine that you're telling us about. We're actually filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what is happening. And then he proceeds to quote the prophet Joel, who these listeners would be very familiar with as an Old Testament prophet. And he explains what the prophet said, how there will become a day, there will come a day where God will pour out his spirit on his people. Guess what? Today is that day. We have great news. We've been filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit that the prophet Joel had spoken about centuries ago. And then he goes on to explain the gospel to these men. He goes on to explain that uh, and testify as a witness what Jesus had done. He's fulfilling what Jesus called him to do, what these apostles were to do in Acts 1. He tells this people that, hey, this Jesus that you guys put to death, by the way, is alive and well. He's alive. And here's what that means for you. And he says, while we're full of the Holy Spirit, we're full of him because God has made Jesus both Lord and Savior. This is why we have the Holy Spirit right now. This is why we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, because Jesus sits on the throne. He sits on the throne. The man that you put to death has risen. He's alive. And we're full of the Holy Spirit because of him. In his death and in his resurrection, he has saved you. And he is Lord over you. He has all authority. And that brings us up to speed to the passage that we read. What we read was the response of the people to Peter. How did the people respond? It actually says that they were cut to the heart. This verb to cut actually means to kind of stab or experience a sharp pain. Have you ever experienced that, that feeling in your heart where you experience just this, this kind of sharp jab at your heart, you're cut to the heart? It, it's not a fun feeling. It, it's not a good experience. It's a very unpleasant feeling, but boy, is it a powerful motivator. When your heart just kind of wrenches a little bit, this is what would happen. And what Luke, the author of our text, wants us to know is that these people felt this message. They, they, they weren't um, experiencing just an intellectual knowledge, but an emotional uh, knowledge. They, they were sincere and they were experiencing a great conviction. You know, this is true remorse. This is what true remorse looks like and what it starts at, just the, the heart-wrenching grab. 
When I was younger, I would often get into trouble because I was a little bit of a troublemaker. And when my mother would catch me, I would, my immediate response would be, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she would always call me out on it. And she said, she would always say the same line that you've all heard before. She would say, you're not sorry. You're just sorry that you got caught. You haven't been cut to the heart. You're only sorry that you, that you got caught. That's merely lip service in order to try and wiggle myself out of experiencing the full extent of my mother's wrath, right? I, I'm just saying something so I don't have to be punished for it. But we have to be reminded that God sees past the lip service. He sees past the, the outward appearance. He looks to the heart. He can truly tell if you've been cut to the heart or not. Some of our hearts are so hardened that we can't be cut to the heart. We can't experience that because we're bitter, because we're angry, because we're prideful and we're never willing to admit fault. This was not the case for Peter's listeners These people had all the knowledge of the gospel and then they truly understood the ramifications of it. You see, their sin was exposed for what it truly was. They were able to see it for what it truly was. So imagine these men sitting there saying, I've put this Christ to death and now he's risen again. Oops, what do I do now? And this is what they asked Peter. They're saying, Peter, what, how do we respond? What do we do? <laughs> this, this feels terrible. I don't want to be in this state anymore. And Peter's response is extremely important for us to understand. Because there are times that I believe as we speak with our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving family members, that our explanation of the gospel And our invitation to them to respond is is about as clear as mud. I have found it that there are many, many believers that do not know how to articulate the gospel and do not know how to share about what the next step is. What is that first initial step in becoming a Christ follower, a Christian, a disciple of Christ? Notice what Peter doesn't say. Peter doesn't say, hey, um, you have to start coming to church. To, to be a believer. Um, you, you have to invite Jesus into your heart to be a believer. No, what, what does he say? He says, repent and be baptized. This word repent basically means to turn in a direction, to change course. It means to take a t- conscious turn toward God uh, and his ways. It's as if you're walking on a single path. Right? And on this single path, one direction leads to life, and the other direction leads to death. One direction uh, leads you to God, is walking towards God. One direction is walking away from God. And because of our sin nature, all of us are born walking in the direction away from God. We are naturally inclined to be rebellious towards God, to walk away from God. And so, to repent means to change directions. It means to, that I was walking down one path, and then I turned around, and I saw God, and I decided that I wanted to pursue him. 
Instead of walking away from Jesus and rebelling against him, I am now walking towards Jesus. I was an enemy of God, and now I'm a friend of God. I lived a life that was not glorifying to him, and now I'm decided to live a life that is pleasing to him. Once again, in the most basic sense, it's a change of mind. It's a change of mind about the world. It's a change of mind about how you view God. It's a change of mind about how you view yourself. I've changed my mind and have decided that I can't find any satisfaction in the world. I can't find any satisfaction in myself. I can't find life in any of those things. So I've changed my mind and I've gone to God. I've looked to God. I've turned to God. It's sitting here and saying that I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The, 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 the cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. It's a reorientation of life. And I love this illustration of this path. Because so many people get hung up on this idea of do I have to give up my sin in order to follow Jesus, in order to be a Christian? And the wonderful thing is, if you have truly reoriented your life to follow Jesus, if you have truly repented uh, and changed directions on this path, you will naturally give up your sin. Because of this path illustration, you, you have God on one end, and you have sin on the other end, and to turn away from God, or to turn to God, is naturally to turn away from your sin. To follow God and to give up sin is one and the same thing. And so it's not a matter of do I have to give up my sin that I so desperately want to hold on to. What I would challenge you and say, well, if you're following Jesus, you won't want to hold on to your sin. You, you won't desire that anymore because there's nothing there. There's no, there's no life there. If you have truly turned to God, it's not that you have to give up your sin. You just will. This will be your heart's desire. To turn to God is the same thing as turning away from sin. Now, before, before I discourage you and cause you to doubt your salvation... <laughs> please know that even when we repent and start uh, pursuing God, our human flesh doesn't give up that easily. You know, our sin clings to us. So this may take some time. Very rarely have I seen somebody uh, give up some of these major issues that they're dealing with overnight. It doesn't happen that way. This is a process. But I do believe over time, that if you follow Jesus, sin will lose its grip on you because you will see the true nature of your sin. You will see how ugly it is. You, you will see how deadly it is. Now, there's not going to be a day that we are perfect on this side of heaven. We will always wrestle with this. We will always wrestle with this sin, but it is my hope, and I truly believe what Scripture says is that as you pursue God, some of these things will begin to lose their grip on you. And you can passionately pursue God. This is what Peter calls them to do. Repent. Repent. Change directions. Have you repented? Have you made that change to Christ yet? 
Perhaps you have uh, come this morning because you have been forced to by a mother or a wife, given the day that all mom wants is for us to come to church. If that's you and you think it's purely by accident that you've come here this morning, let me encourage you that uh, this is no accident that you sit here listening to these words. There is no accident in you hearing this call to repent. Some mothers sit here and they mourn because all they want is for their husband or their children to repent, to change directions, to start passionately pursuing God. And so would you do that this morning? Peter tells them to repent. He also tells them to be baptized. Now, this would be um, easy to misinterpret Peter here, to look at this and say that baptism is a requirement for salvation, but it is simply not the case. Uh, We must interpret Scripture in the light of all Scripture. And in this context, baptism is merely an expression of our repentance. Baptism doesn't grant you forgiveness. Your repentance does. What Peter is saying here is if you have truly been cut to the heart, and you have truly given your life over to Jesus and repented, then you should demonstrate it through baptism. This is is why we call it an outward expression of an inward change. And this is for the good of the entire community to participate in baptism. Because while God can see your heart, I can't. And Peter couldn't. And so what Peter is essentially saying is is that while I can't see your heart, would you please just show us the fruit of what's going on in your heart? Would you be willing to stand in the waters of baptism and declare that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Because that will show me your fruit. That will show me that you have been cut to the heart and that you have truly repented. It is a public act demonstrating what has already been done in your heart. Baptism is a way of publicly acknowledging with no reservation that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. But it's not just a public acknowledgement of an allegiance to God in Christ, but it's also a way that we identify with Christ. This is why we practice here at FAC baptism by full immersion. Right When we get people in these waters and we actually have a uh, baptism coming up, I believe it's next week. I got to get my dates right. Um, When they step into the waters, we dunk them underwater and that represents their death and death to their sin. And we pull them out of the water, which represents their resurrection. And it's an, it's a, It's an identification. It symbolizes the resurrection that we experience in Christ. That's what baptism is, a public acknowledgement of Christ and a public identifying with Christ. It's not a requirement for salvation. However, um, while it's not a requirement, don't use that as a cop-out. Don't use that as a cop-out. If anything, this passage shows us how closely linked baptism and repentance truly are. It shows us how serious baptism is. In the New Testament, there was no such thing as an unbaptized believer. Because it's what you did. You repent, you turn to Jesus, and you get baptized. It's, It's the next step. It's an association so closely tied to conversion that it would be unheard of in the New Testament for you to be a believer that was not baptized. Essentially, this was their version of an altar call. 
Right? They, they make known that Jesus Christ is Lord and they take a public stand. They put a stake in the ground before everyone that I have decided to follow Jesus. And so I have a very uncomfortable question for you. Have you, as a believer here today, if you are a believer, have you been baptized? And if not, what's stopping you? What could possibly be holding you back from publicly announcing that I have decided to follow Jesus? You'll notice that um, Peter didn't say repent and then uh, become very spiritually mature and grow. And then maybe someday when you're elevated to super Christian status, then and only then can you get baptized. No, but that's what we, that's what we look at it as sometimes. We look at baptism as a finish line. When in all reality, if you look at scripture, it's not the finish line. It's not a destination that I have to get to into my spiritual journey. Uh, according to scripture, baptism is the starting line. It happens when you begin your walk with Christ. It happens when you repent. And then, moving on, when we repent, according to Peter, we'll receive two things. The first is forgiveness. God has promised us forgiveness. It is always God's desire to forgive. How assuring it is to know that when you turn to God in your repentance, he's not waiting for you with the rod of punishment. He's waiting for you with loving arms of forgiveness. How easy it is. How much easier it is to turn, knowing what's going to happen at the other end, knowing that God is going to embrace you and bring you into the family and invites you into the table. It requires a great act of humility to turn. And I'll give you that 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 is a very hard step to overcome. But be assured that you do not have to worry about how God is going to respond to you when you repent. There is no hurdle there as far as what God has in store for you. He's waiting for you with arms of forgiveness. And coupled with that forgiveness, we also receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, hey, you know that spirit that I was just telling you about that we've received? Well, guess what? It's not just for us. It's for you too. It's the same spirit that the apostles have. It's a spirit that will empower you. It's a spirit that will clean you, a spirit that will enable you and help you to turn from that sin that that clings to you so tightly. This is a promise. If you respond, you will receive. If you respond, you will receive. If you respond in repentance, you will receive forgiveness and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this gift isn't just for the super Christians. This is, this is for your everyday believer. Peter explains that the promise is for them too. And oh, by the way, in verse 39, this promise isn't just for you, but it's multi-generational. This promise is for your children and your children's children. It goes, it goes far beyond this generation. And this promise isn't just for those who are in Jerusalem. It's not limited Jerusalem, but it's also for the ones who are far away from Jerusalem. This is specifically speaking to a geographical barrier, right? However, it shows us that there are no barriers to the gospel, 
Peter is saying that this promise is for those who are far away from Jerusalem. You don't have to be in Jerusalem. You don't have to live in Jerusalem to receive this promise. There is no geographical barrier to this promise. However, as we look, while Peter is talking about the geographical barriers, I do believe that there's broader application for us in that the gospel shatters barriers. There is no barrier too strong to stop the gospel work of Jesus Christ. There is no barrier too strong to, to, to stop God from forgi- forgiving you and giving you his Holy Spirit. Not ethnicity, not race, not language, not gender, not even your own sin. It does not matter how far off uh, the deep end you've gone. It doesn't matter about the, the immoral depths that you have stooped to. It doesn't matter how rock bottom you've hit. God's promise still rings true that if you repent, no matter how far away you've walked from him, no matter how far away you've rebelled from him, if you repent, if you make that turn, God will forgive you and give you his Holy Spirit to enable you to live a holy life. You are not too far gone to turn to Jesus. There are no limitations to his reach. There is no immoral depth that you can stoop to that is too deep for you to not hear God's voice calling you. And have you noticed? That's actually what it says in Scripture. Take a look at uh, verse 39. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter affirms that this promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls. Right? You see, in our sin, we are unable to initiate this salvific relationship. God must initiate it. God is the one who calls us. If we, if we were to go back to that path illustration, I am walking down that path of rebellion because it's natural to me. I've never known anything else. This, this, is, this is my sin. I'm walking down a path in the direction of death. And then I heard a call from God, a gentle wooing from my creator calling out to me, stop, turn around, gaze upon my face. And when I, re- when I hear that and I respond, I look to God. I see him. And once my eyes have laid on him, there was no turning back. Once I have seen God for who he truly is, eyes unblinded, I discover that there's no reason to ever turn back because I have set my eyes on God. Everything else fades away. Everything else fades away. God calls us, we respond. And then this exchange happens, right? We, we give him our life. He gives us forgiveness and his spirit. And once this exchange happens, we are actually called out of one community and we are introduced to a new community. 
This is a very individual moment that leads to a corporate application, if you will. See, all of what we've spoken about this morning leads and points into and serves as an introduction to this new kind of community that we call the church. Because all the Christian church is, is a collection of people that have repented. In its most basic sense, it is a group of people that were so messed up and they heard God's call and they responded. That is the, the Christian church. And so don't come in here and expect to find anything worthwhile in any of us. Don't come in here expecting to, to be blown away by how spiritually mature we are or how close with God we are because we are nothing without God calling us. This church is just a body of believers who have said, I was so messed up in my sin. I was dangling over hell itself, but then God called me out and I responded. That's it. That's, that's, that's the church, right? Having turned to Jesus, we're no longer a part of this crooked generation that that Peter tells us about in verse 40, the community of the world, but we've become a part of a community of God's family. We're given a new community. Of course we are, because when we turn to Christ, everything about us becomes new. Think about this. Uh, there's, a, there's just a dichotomy in Scripture about leaving the old and joining the new. Uh, in Scripture, we are told that we are a new creation. We are given a new birth. We are given a new strength. We have been given new minds. We have a new way. We have a new heart. We have a new spirit. We have a new life. Those are all found in Scripture. So, of course, we're going to be given a new community. If everything about you is new, uh, why wouldn't you be part of a new community? Many Christians tend to view their relationship with God as this this personal and isolated relationship. And while your relationship with God is personal and is primary, it does compel us into a number of secondary relationships with each other. When God called you into fellowship with him, he not only called you to fellowship with him, but he has called you into fellowship with each other, into a relationship, into not, not an organization, not a corporation, into a family. You have been brought in to this. And so in repentance, not only has God reconciled us to him, we've actually been reconciled to each other. We can have a functioning, healthy relationship here at FAC. To repent and to become a believer is to be part of a new community. Leaving the old, embracing the new. And on that day, that's exactly what happened. It tells us in verse 41 that 3,000 people were added to their number that day and were baptized. Peter's like the most effective evangelist of all time. He gives one sermon and 3,000 people come to know Christ. So you have to wonder, what on earth do you do with 3,000 baby Christians What do you do with 3,000 new believers? You introduce them to the basics. You introduce them to the basics. I'm a huge fan of baseball. And you will find that when a professional player begins to slump, you know, when 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 he's just not hitting the ball right, or he's not making his pitch, 
uh, most of the time there is an extremely small mechanical issue with his swing or with his delivery. It's It's just the slightest change that has probably occurred over time because he got in the habit of doing something this way. He, he might not even realize that he's doing it, but he's doing it, and he has now gotten the habit, and, and it's having a negative impact on his performance. And in order to, be, to get back to becoming a productive player, an effective player, a healthy player on the field, they have to revert back to the basics. They must revisit fundamentals. You will find this over and over and over again. When they interview players, they will always say that if I want to be a consistently productive and effective and healthy player, I must focus on the fundamentals. I must do the basics well. These are players that have played their entire life. They are like superhuman when it comes to their ability on the field to be able to hit a 95 mile an hour fastball. It is unreal what they can do and how how they have been gifted, but they will always stress the importance of knowing the basics, doing the basics and doing them well. Here at FAC, if we wish to be effective and productive and healthy, if we wish to do anything worthwhile, if we want to be a healthy church that reflects God's character, we must do the basics and do the basics well. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need to get cute. We need to focus on the basics. What are the basics? They're actually laid out in verses 42 through 47. The the, the narrative that we read shifts from the description of particular events on a particular day to just the general description of community life of that first church. In a sense, these verses serve as a model of what a community that is bound together by the gospel should look like. And there are six practices that they participated in that characterized their community life that that we've just kind of drawn out of the text. And over the next couple of months, these are the things that we're going to work through. These are the things that we are going to examine. It's the apostles' teaching, fellowship, prayer, mutual care, praise, and evangelism. These are the basics. We're going back to the basics. If FAC is a community that is bound together by the gospel, we need to focus on these six things. I'm afraid, much like baseball players, that churches can get in the habits uh, of straying away from these things. And they don't even realize that they're doing it. And so it is of vital importance that we look back, that we look back at this early church community. If we are a group of people who have repented, and are unified in Christ, and we need to focus on the main things, the important things. And as we continue to transition in our senior pastor role, um, there are a lot of things. We have to understand that there may be many things here at FAC that may get dropped. However, of all the things that we could drop, of all the balls that we could drop, these six things we cannot drop. If we are known for anything, in the community, and in the world. I want to be known for these six things. And I am convinced that if we are faithful to these things, 
we will experience a community here at FAC uh, that is thriving and healthy that reflects God's character as defined in his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided us a roadmap in your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we're not doing this alone, that we have your spirit. So I would ask, Father, that um, as FAC turns a, a chapter in our history, that we would see the importance of the basics and that we would do them well. Lord, let us be known as a community of believers that care uh, so much about these things and that we don't care for the unnecessaries, that we don't care for the, the little things that have no real eternal impact. We thank you, Lord, for that. I, I ask, Father, as we uh, collect our offering, um, that this would be a part of our community life, Lord. Eventually, we're going to speak from the pulpit about mutual care, Lord, and we look at this as an act of worship as we collect um, just our offerings and our tithes. Lord, would you, would you bless that so that we can bless others? Would you bless this offering so that we can make the name of Jesus known? We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. It's far beyond anything that we've ever deserved. In your holy name I pray. Amen.